the summer after my sophomore year in college, I went on a summer project with Campus Crusade for Christ. And I had given my life to Christ the year before, and this was a chance to be surrounded by strong believers under the tutelage of full-time crusade staff to learn to share my faith, read my Bible, and follow Christ more closely. And it was a wonderful experience that put me on the path to vocational ministry. But halfway through the summer, the project took a twist. The director called all of us in and said, uh, all the staff are headed home and y'all will be completing the project on your own. And so we just all of a sudden found out that we would be now doing all the things that we had assumed that they would be doing and directing. And he gave a general exhortation to humility and holiness and love and prayer. And then he assigned us different teams and different roles within those teams. So there was one new director, a student, who was given overall authority and responsibility for the project. And then there were team leaders and there were people underneath those leaders. Everybody had a given role so that we could better serve Christ together. All of us were to be humble, to be holy, to be prayerful, to be evangelistic, but then each of us had a specific role and function and responsibility with different levels of authority that were required by those roles. The same thing is true in the church and for believers, that all of us are called to holiness and to humility and to love. And in the first 17 verses of chapter 3 of Colossians, Paul has been exhorting us to lay aside all those things that characterized our old self in the flesh. All of our hate, all of our immorality, all of our slander, all of our fleshliness, all of our worldliness, all of those things we lay aside and like a new fresh garment, we put on love, humility, holiness, compassion, grace, all the beautiful attributes that reflect the beauty of our Savior. But now in 3.18 through 4.1, Paul is going to talk about specific roles, specific responsibilities, and different levels of authority as God has ordained creation to function. We're going to see three pairs of relationships moving from more intimate to less intimate. And in each case, Paul is going to talk, first of all, to the one who is in submission to another authority, and then to the person exercising that authority, so that all of us know how to honor God in our various roles. We will see, first of all, Paul talk about honoring Christ as wives and husbands in marriage. Honoring Christ as children and parents in a family, and honoring Christ as slaves and masters in the workplace. Let's look first at verse 18 and 19. Honoring Christ in marriage as wives and husbands. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. The first group that Paul addresses are wives. Now, this is not women in general submitting to the authority of men in general. That's not a biblical teaching. This is for wives in the context of marriage and instructions for how God has ordained the family and the home to be run. The word subject is used 38 times in the New Testament for a variety of different subordinating positions. Christ submitted himself to Joseph and to Mary as he submitted himself to his heavenly father. Believers submit themselves to God and to Christ. Non-believers refuse to submit themselves to God's law and righteousness. Residents of a nation submit themselves to governing authority. Church members submit themselves to church authorities. Slaves, servants submit themselves to their masters. And wives submit themselves to their husband. Now this isn't a subjugation. This isn't a being responsive to every whim and demand. 
This is a voluntarily recognizing that there is a different hierarchy of authority and acknowledging gladly my place in it according to God's law. So if you were in the military, you enlisted and you subordinated yourself to your superior officers. When you enroll in a class, you put yourself under the authority of the instructors. When you work at a company, you put yourself under the authority of the employers. This is a voluntary acknowledgement of I am not the highest authority here. The ultimate authority resides in another. And the consistent teaching of Paul and Peter, the Holy Spirit speaking through them for wives, is to be in submission to their husbands. Here's three passages in parallel. Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. Titus 2. Older women are to encourage the young women to love their husbands, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. 1 Peter 3. You wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, adorned themselves with a gentle and quiet spirit, being submissive to their own husbands. The church submits to Christ our head, and that's the example of wives to submit to their husbands. It's dishonoring to God's word when wives refuse to obey it. And it is a witnessing opportunity when a believing wife is chaste and humble and submissive to a non-believing husband and can be used by God to lead him to the Lord. Now, I actually went to seminary with someone that that was his testimony. He was a classics professor and he had been unfaithful to his wife. He had married the student that he had had an affair with. He was not a believer. She was not a believer. They went to London on a trip they visited Spurgeon's church as a historical curiosity, and there in that church, she got saved in a radical way. And as she tried to share the gospel with her husband, who had more education than she did, he was dismissive, he was peremptory, just knocking it aside. But then her behavior began to change, and for the first time, she spoke to him respectfully, lovingly, gently, graciously. And the transformation of her character in response to him led him to the Lord, and he left his position as the head of a classics department of an Eastern University to give his life to Christ and to pursue vocational ministry because of the example of a wife doing just what Peter said. So for 1900 years, these very clear, very consistent teachings were preached very straightforwardly by the church until in the mid-1900s, they began to be a little bit uncomfortable and then a little bit unpopular, and then a little bit unattractive. And today, for many, they are unimaginable. Uh, Dave and I know someone that was at a wedding at a mainline church in Denton 25 years ago, and they wanted to read Ephesians 5 as part of their wedding vows. And the church would not let them read these verses aloud because they would not allow in public the statement to be said, wives, be subject to your husband. So how are we to deal with all this? Well, first of all, Humans can't dictate what God can and can't say. God is God. The Bible is His Word. We don't get to censor God. We don't get to cancel God. We don't get to edit God. We don't get to update God. We are humans. He is the Creator and the Lord of the universe. 
what God says we are to believe, we are to obey, and we are to know that it is a good and right thing. So God is God, first of all. Secondly, we mustn't let our current assumptions let us misread this text. This is not saying, husbands, subjugate your wives. That's not it. This is not saying, wives, be subject to your every whim of, and demand of your husband. That's not what this is saying. What it is saying is, wives, recognize that God has put you under the authority of your husband in marriage and acknowledge that willingly, voluntarily. Thirdly, it is not demeaning to subject yourself to legitimate authority. Christ was subject to Joseph and Mary. And that must have been frustrating on both their parts. To be the one sinless child, having to put up with your, I mean, the parents that you knew were doing it right. And the parents could never call him on the carpet because he was always the one in the right. But it says he submitted himself to their authority willingly. He submitted himself to God. He submitted himself to unrighteous high priests of Israel. He submitted himself to unrighteous laws of Caesar. It is not demeaning to submit ourselves to an authority that God legitimates. But also, it is never legitimate to abuse and misuse legitimate authority. There are limits. There are ways that it is to be exercised, and Paul's going to get on to that. But what do we do with this practically for women? I want to give you an example from John Piper, an example from my own marriage, some resources, and then I want to make an exhortation before we move on. John Piper wrote a book called Men and Women, What's the Difference? Here's how he begins. When I was a boy growing up in Greenville, South Carolina, my father was away from home about two-thirds of every year. And while he preached as a traveling evangelist, we prayed, my mother, my older sister, and I. And what I learned in those days was that mom was omnicompetent. She handled the finances, paying all the bills, dealing with the bank and creditors. She ran a laundry business on the side. She was active on the park board, served as a superintendent of the intermediate department of our Southern Baptist Church, managed real estate holdings. She taught me how to cut grass, splice electrical cord, pull Bermuda grass, paint the eaves, shine the dining room table, and drive a car and keep French fries from getting soggy in the cooking oil. She helped me with maps and geography, showed me how to do a bibliography, to do a science project, and she made me believe that Algebra 2 was possible. She dealt with the contractors when we added a basement, and more than once I saw her with the shovel in her hand. It never occurred to me that mom couldn't do anything. I heard one time that women don't sweat, they glow. Or here in the South, uh, Southern women don't perspire, they glisten. But my mother sweated. It would drip off the end of her long, sharp nose. Sometimes she would blow it off when her hands were pushing the wheelbarrow full of peat moss or she'd wipe it on her sleeve between the strokes of the swing blade. Mother was strong. Even 30 years later, I remember her arms, big, bronzed by the summertime. But it never occurred to me to think of my mother and my father in the same category. Both were strong, both were bright, both were kind, both would kiss me, both would spank me. Both were good with words, both prayed with fervor. But unmistakably, my father was a man and my mother was a woman. They knew it. We knew it. And it wasn't mainly a biological fact, it was mainly a matter of personhood and relational dynamics. When my father came home, he was clearly the head of the house. He led in prayer at the table, he called the family together for devotions, he got us to Sunday school and worship, he drove the car, he guided the family where we would sit, he made the decision to go to Howard Johnson's for lunch, he led us to the table, called for the waitress, paid for the check. He was the one we knew we would reckon with 
if we broke a family rule or were ever disrespectful to mother. These were mother's happiest times. Oh, how she rejoiced to have daddy home. She loved his leadership. Later, I learned that this is what the Bible called submission. It's not that harsh and that hateful and that wrong a thing. Uh, in my own marriage, I've been married almost 28 years. Uh, my wife has two degrees. And in most of our marriage, almost all of our decisions have been mutual. Uh, a large number of our decisions, I defer to her. So when it came time to decide what our COVID protocols were going to be, I deferred to the biology major and the nurse because she was better equipped to handle that than I was. And in many areas, Nock is much more educated, informed, and capable than I am. And there have been less than five, six occasions where I have used my authority as the head of the home to say, honey, we disagree on this, and I'm going to make the decision on this. As an example, uh, my wife was a Baylor nursing student at Baylor Hospital. Then she worked at the hospital in the graveyard shift, which was not nice, but it was doable when we lived in Dallas. But when we moved to Denton, I wanted her to change her job to Denton because I was worried about her staying up all night and then driving home after a long shift. But Nock doesn't like change. She was happy at Baylor. She knew the staff. She knew the patient. She knew the protocol. Nock said, I don't want to change my job. It's worth the commute. I said, okay, it's your job, it's your hours, I'm going to let you do this. Until she came home one day and said, I don't remember driving through Louisville. And I said, we're done. We're done here. Um, I wasn't going to risk losing my wife because she didn't want change, which is what it came down to. I said, you're quitting Baylor and we're going to find you another job. And she did. Uh, there was a time when our children were taking piano lessons. And like most children, they didn't thrive and desire to take piano lessons. They were crying. She was frustrated. She said, let's just give it up. And I said, no, we're going to go ahead and stick through this. We're going to finish the year. And then it turned out to be a wonderful thing for the kids. Um, there was another occasion when a family member of hers was being verbally abusive to her. And I heard the shouting and I came in and I said, this conversation's done. Honey, please leave the room. I'm going to finish the conversation. And she quietly left the room and let me stand in front of my wife. But that's been less than five or six times in our entire marriage. And it's a good thing. It's a right thing. It's a godly thing that God has ordained. It is not a demeaning, a belittling, or a humiliating thing to be submissive to a loving husband in God's plan. However, because this is so controversial, uh, let me recommend some resources for y'all before I make an exhortation. The best resource available on all issues of manhood, womanhood, and marriage, and women's roles in church from a biblical perspective is called the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Uh, a good friend of mine that I went to seminary with is the head of this organization, or at least he was. They have articles, essays, reviews, books. This is a wonderful resource that I highly recommend. Uh, Kevin DeYoung has just republished an amazing work. If you don't know Kevin DeYoung, he's a reformed pastor who has a wonderful ability of communicating clearly and concisely. He's so lucid in his thinking and his communication. They've just republished a really wonderful book he's done called Men and Women in the Church. Uh, Alexander Strauch is a church elder who writes on church issues. He has a book called Men and Women Equal Yet Different. And then a few there on, by John Piper that you can actually download for free at DesiringGod.org. 
So they love for you to support the ministry by buying the books, but if you don't have the money, they let you download it free in Kindle format or PDF. And so you can just read the resources online. And if you're really feeling robust, you can read the revised edition of the 688-page Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood that exhaustively covers every exegetical and theological issue on it. But those are the resources. Uh, if you have questions about this, concerns about this, come talk to myself, to Fred, to Dave, to Brian. We'll open up the text together and we'll just see what did God say. But I do want to make an exhortation to you single ladies out there. Choose your mate carefully. My daughter, my prayer for her is that God give her someone who loves Christ, like Christ has a Christ-like character and will love my daughter as Christ loves the church. Because that's a major decision that she's making. And so I'm going to tell her and I would tell y'all, choose carefully. Find someone who is wise, who is diligent, who is humble, who is faithful, who is honest, who's willing to admit when they're wrong, who's willing to apologize. Because you don't want someone who is cocky, irritable, short-tempered, can't take correction, never admits they're wrong, is demanding and demeaning to others. And so you want to watch your potential mate, how they treat waitstaff, how they handle traffic, how they respond when they're criticized or things don't go their way. Do they give up easily? Are they constantly complaining and frustrating? Choose your mate carefully. <laughs> you men, become a godly man that is worthy of these beautiful sisters. Aspire to be like Christ. Be wise, be diligent, be honest, be faithful, be humble, be gentle, be willing to defer, be willing to admit you're wrong. We need godly young men and godly young women to come together as godly husbands and wives to make godly families. And this is part of it. And it's not hard to do when the husbands do our part, which is the next verse. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Now, it's kind of ironic that today it's verse 18 that's controversial, but in verse 19, or in, in Paul's day, verse 19 was literally unprecedented. Douglas Moo, a fine Pauline scholar, says this, Requiring wives to submit to husbands matches widespread Greek and Jewish teachings about marriage. Requiring husbands to love their wives does not. Indeed, no other code we have discovered in the ancient world requires husbands to love their wives. But Paul does, because God does. And he goes at great length to talk about how important this is for husbands. Quoting Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ sacrificed himself for the church and we sacrifice ourselves for our bride. Christ is our provider and protector and we are our provider and protector for our brides. Christ is our model for how we love our wives. Then he says, husbands, love your wives, or husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own body, but nourishes it and cherishes it. And so husbands are called to nourish our wives, to cherish our wives. Uh, my wife called me this morning. Uh, we went down to Houston for Thanksgiving. I came back yesterday. She's coming back today. She called, and as soon as I picked up the phone, she goes, happy anniversary. Now, it's not our anniversary, technically. We were married on May 28th, but on the 28th of every month, we have a competition to see who can say happy anniversary to the other first. 
and she won this month, and she gloated, and she, it was wonderful. But she's an amazing woman. And the longer I'm married to her, the more appreciative I am of just how gifted and godly and hardworking and wonderful that she is. And we are to cherish our brides. They are a gift of God. Then he says, each individual among you is to love his own wife as he loves himself. We look out for our interest. We look out for our wives. We typically pursue what we want. We should defer and pursue what our wife wants. At every occasion, we should be submitting ourselves and serving our wives and protecting our wives and bearing the brunt of the hardness of life whenever we can, standing up for our wives as the kids get older and more defiant because that's what we do, because that's what Christ does for us. And it's not hard for a wife to submit when her husband is loving her like that. And that's what we're called to do. I don't see Papa Mel here today, but many of us who saw Papa Mel with Patty got a model of what that looks like. And Mel doted on Patty. And Mel (laughs) catered to Patty. And when Patty couldn't travel anymore, Mel quit traveling. And when Patty's memory began to go, Mel never would put her in a home because Mel was the only one that was going to take care of Patty. He doted on her. He cared to her. We were worried about Mel's health because of the extent that he was losing sleep and trying to care of what we thought was beyond his physical ability. And I was actually at their home when Patty passed. And her last words were, I love you, Daddy Mel. (laughs) Because he loved her really well. Uh, If you've ever seen Dave treat Jennifer and the way he talks about his Jenny, where now we're watching my dad love my mom. (laughs) In really wonderful ways. That's our command. We don't get to belittle our wives. We don't get to disregard our wives. We don't get to use our superior size and strength or our control of the finances to somehow put our wives under our thumb. We don't get to just blast our anger at them and vent it when things go bad in the world for us. We have to love our wives as Christ loved the church, as we love our own bodies, as we love ourselves. This is what we're called to do. Next. Paul moves to the children. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Uh, This was one of the first verses we had our children memorize, Uh, not just because we wanted their obedience, but we wanted them to be well-pleasing to Jesus, and this is what it takes to be well-pleasing to Jesus. Children, you must obey your parents. It's a stronger word than be be subject to. That's the idea of deferring, acknowledging voluntarily that there's a higher authority finally. This is, you obey the commands of your parents. If your parents tell you not to do something, you don't do it. Unless they try to command you to do something God prohibits or to prohibit you from doing something God commands, children, you must obey your parents. If you defy them, you are defying God and you are displeasing your Lord. It's that cut and dried. It's that simple. But there also comes a complimentary verse for the parents, which is what fathers encompasses. Fathers, do not exasperate your child so that they will not lose heart. The word exasperate means to arouse, to provoke, to irritate, or embitter. Parents shouldn't arouse our kids' angers by venting our anger on them. That because we're bigger, we bully them. 
and we bluster our way into intimidating them into obedience. We shouldn't provoke them by constantly critiquing them. We shouldn't irritate them by pestering them about small things. We shouldn't embitter them by embarrassing them in front of their friends or by giving punishments that aren't appropriate for the misdemeanors. There's nothing in our attitude, in our words, in our tones, in our actions that should make our kids lose heart, that should break their spirit, that should dishearten them, that should make them want to run away from home. We are to parent. And we're to do that together as husbands and wives because we play different roles in that. Uh, Dave and I have a dear friend whose daughter was having a hard time obeying her mom at one season of her teenage years. And she kept complaining to the dad that she wanted to be on her side and the dad seemed to always be siding with the mom. And the dad was talking to her one day and he says, oh, I see the problem. You think you're the queen. You're not the queen. Mommy's the queen. You're the princess. It's great to be the princess, but you're not the queen. Queen mommy told you to do that and you're gonna do that. She had forgotten her place. It's wonderful to be the prince or the princess, but mommy and daddy are the queen and the king. And we exercise that authority, which means we must parent which means we must use our authority that God entrusts us with to raise up our children in the way that they should go in the fear of the Lord. Uh, Nock and I have two children, a girl, 20, and a boy, 18. And without going too long on a subject that could be an entire message, here's just a few of the lessons that really helped us in our parenting of children. Uh, we took Lloyd and Deanna Campbell's positive parenting class. And uh, so I know some of y'all did as well. One of the things that they emphasized was make it easy for your child to obey. If you don't want them to touch the remote, put the remote out of their sight, out of their reach. If you don't really mean to ask a question, don't phrase a command in the form of a question. Don't say, are you ready for a bath? No boy's ever ready for a bath. You're not asking him. You just say, it's bath time. You don't say, are you ready for bed? They're never ready for bed. Old people get ready for bed. The young kids, so don't ask it that way. Just say, it's bedtime. Don't say, what do you want to eat? And then go through the rigmarole of them shooting down 40 different items. You're not a short order cook. You say, do you want a PB&J or a grilled cheese? You give them a choice, you let them make a decision, and you act. Make it easy for them to obey. We read a book called To Train Up a Child. And it can be a little bit heavy-handed in truth, but here was the basic lesson. You are always training your child. If you don't really expect obedience until you use their middle name and then raise your voice after the third repetition, you've trained them, mommy or daddy isn't serious until they say my full name and repeat themselves three times. Why not rather train them to expect first time, full, complete, cheerful obedience? Train them the right way, but you're always training them. So train them to do it the right way. Uh, Dave and I read a book called Shepherding a Child's Heart. We're not just after behavior, we're after the heart. We're after a Christ-like character, which means we preach the gospel, we share God's truth, and most importantly, we model it because character is more caught than taught. Two last things. Uh, I heard a dad, he just had a really tough time with his teen. And here and there, he would give and yield. And I said, well, how do you know when you yield and when you stand firm. He said, you gotta play the long game and you can't lose the war for the sake of winning every battle. If your mindset is, I'm winning every battle, you may lose the war, which is the relationship with your child. And so you have to know when to give and when to stand firm. 
And then David had a youth pastor in Georgia that he really admired and said, man, you've raised beautiful kids. What's your secret? Because Dave was just starting his family. He said, love Jesus and love your kids and they'll connect the dots. Make sure your kids know you love Jesus. Make sure they know that you love them and they'll connect those dots and they'll love Jesus too. Great advice. Moving next. Slaves, and at that word, some people just stop. <laughs> because if the teaching on wives submitting to their husbands is uncomfortable, slavery is offensive. Knock um, and I attended a church in Dallas while I was in seminary. Wonderful Sunday school class taught by an insurance salesman who had his THM from Dallas. And he was teaching through the book of Ephesians. And when he came to the parallel passage to this verse, he said, slavery is no longer existent. It is abhorrent. And therefore, these verses no longer apply to us. We're skipping them. And I thought, that doesn't seem right. <laughs> I mean, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. So there are some profitable parallels here. So I'm going to talk briefly about the slavery and then draw where I think we can find some helpful parallels. In Paul's day, an estimated one in five people living in the Roman Empire was a slave. In Italy, that number went to one in three. In Rome, it was as high as one to two and a half. So every third person was a slave in Italy. This was pervasive. This was systemic. This was everywhere. You couldn't avoid it. And in every church, there were going to be slaves in that church. And so Paul addressed it. Many people critique today, well, why didn't they criticize it? Why didn't they condemn it? And a gentleman by the name of Murray Harris, who's an expert in the first century, had this to say. It was not until the second half of the 18th century that slavery as an institution was considered morally reprehensible. Slavery was not an American invention. It was not a European invention. There has been the enslavement of individuals as long as there have been lives outside of the Garden of Eden. It's in every culture, it's on every continent, it involves every race, it's been in every age, and it is so pervasive, it is such a ubiquitous wrong and evil that people just accepted it because they couldn't imagine a world without it because there had never been a world without it. It was only in the last part of the 18th century that people began to not just want better treatment of slaves, but to remove the institution altogether. Previously, he says, its inevitability had been assumed. The Bible does not condone it, celebrate it, reinforce it, but neither does it try to remove something that was a social institution that wouldn't be removed for another 1900 years. So how do we apply the verse today? I do think that there are some parallels and some applications to be made between the slave-master relationship and the employer-employee relationship, which is how we're going to take this. So Paul, speaking in those terms, is going to first of all speak to the one under authority. Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Employees acknowledge their employer's authority where it's legitimate within the purview of their employment. We follow policy and procedure. We follow instructions. We get the job done excellently in spec and on time. Christians are model employees in that regard. And we don't really do it for appearance's sake. We don't just see when someone is watching or to do it to make an advancement or get a raise. We do it from the heart because we know that Jesus is always watching. 
that the Lord knows not only our actions and whether or not we slept off when the boss left the room, but also our motive, our attitude, our character. And because we fear the Lord, because we revere Jesus, we are excellent employees, whatever the task may be. He says in verse 23, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So when I was on that summer project with Crusade, we all had to get jobs. My job was a grease cook at Jack in the Box, and it's the worst job I ever had. <laughs> Woke up at 5 a.m., put on the polyester, rode the city bus down to the Jack in the Box, learned what a grease trap was, uh, found out that you could take the hamburger patties with a hammer and a screwdriver to break them apart, did the whole nine yards, and I wanted to honor Christ in my work, but I hated my job, and so I put this verse above my workstation so that when I didn't want to clean the grease trap, I could just leave it maybe for the person coming on the next shift. Or when I could maybe not do something or allow my heart just to bitterly complain like a lot of the employees did, I reminded myself, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men because it's the Lord God whom you serve. Whatever we do, we do for Jesus because Jesus our Lord appoints us and assigns us that task. So I'm not vacuuming for Knock, I'm vacuuming for Jesus. And whatever station and work that you have, we're doing it for our Lord in a way that honors Him, just like Joseph did, just like Jacob did, just like others who worked under bad bosses did. We work for Jesus, and we know that Jesus is going to reward us someday. So I asked someone to do this week, uh, do something this week. It turns out they couldn't do it. But he jokingly asked, uh, what's it pay? And I said, celestial cryptocurrency which in a very real sense is true because we are going to get our reward someday. I saw a beautiful bumper sticker that said, working for the Lord doesn't pay much, but the retirement plan is out of this world. <laughs> and so I know that good things are going to come someday to those that faithfully serve the Lord and that God is going to deal with those bad bosses, those Labans, those Pharaohs, those Sauls in our life. Verse 25, he who does wrong will receive the consequence of the wrong which he has done and that without partiality. It doesn't matter to God who wore the boss's cap in that context. They'll answer for it. I just have to be faithful in the context that God has placed me. And now to masters. Masters, grant to your slaves or your employees justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So as employers, as managers, we speak to people justly and fairly. We assign duties justly and fairly. We give credit justly and fairly. We compensate justly and fairly because we know in all these things that we have a master who is so just and fair with us. And we will answer, we will give a reckoning to him someday. Authority is a touchy subject because one, none of us like it, and two, it's so often abused but it is a clear biblical teaching that is part not only of God's post-fall orders, it's there in the Trinity itself that the Father has always been the Father and the Son has always been delighted to serve the Father and the Spirit has always been delighted to honor the Father through the Son. And in the order of creation, God put men and women over the rest of creation. There's always been hierarchy. It's a good thing. But with fallen people, it's always going to be tempered with bad things. Some people will abuse it. Some people will misuse it for themselves. And some people will just make mistakes because none of us are perfect. 
and we still have to honor God by honoring the authorities that God places over us. So five last principles to help us with this troubling command. First of all, we submit to authority and we exercise authority as to the Lord. Seven times in seven verses, our obedience and our exercise of authority is directly linked to Jesus. Wives, be subject to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Children, be obedient to your parents. This is well-pleasing to the Lord. Slaves in all things obey, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. We have master in heaven. We're serving Jesus. Whether with exercising authority or submitting to authority, we're serving Jesus. And he's a good boss to work for. Secondly, Jesus models for us not only the perfect exercise of authority, but perfect submission to authority. And that's such a beautiful truth about our Lord. That when we as husbands are wanting to know how we can best love our lives, we look to Jesus and how he loves the church. Wives submitting to their husbands, you can look to Jesus in the way that he submitted also. Parents exercise authority, and we look to Jesus to how to do that firmly but lovingly. Children look to Jesus who also submitted himself to parents. Jesus is our model of both the authority exercising and the authority submitted to. Thirdly, we will all answer for how we exercise and submit to authority. We will all stand to God someday an answer for our insubordination or our tyranny. And so we just need to be faithful. Anaka said several times, I've got the easy job, but if you screw up, God's, got, God's gonna deal with you. And in, in a sense, that's right. I mean, if I blow retirement or if I get fired or whatever the case may be, it, it's on me. And so we're all gonna answer. And that's a sobering thing, both in the areas that we submit and the areas that we exercise authority. And that's our fourth point. We all are under authority and most of us exercise authority at some point. So when my wife, my wife and I taught our children about authority, we expressed it this way. Mommy and daddy and everyone are under God's authority. And we are under our governing authorities, our secular authorities. And in the church, we are under the authority of our spiritual leaders. Mommy is under dad's authority. You're under mommy and daddy's authority. We're all under authority. And so we model for those, like our children, how to respond to authority by the way that we respond to authority. And likewise, all of us exercise some authority. And so knowing how hard it is to exercise authority and how thankless that is oftentimes, we do it more graciously. And because we are under the authority of others who are often bad boss and we don't enjoy when they're heavy-handed, when they're unappreciative, we need to not be heavy-handed and unappreciative. And so we learn from that. And then finally, authority is a good thing. Autonomy, where everyone does their own thing, their own way, leads to anarchy. And anarchy is worse than authority. If you know your Bibles, you know the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, when there was no king in Israel, what did everyone do? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's the American dream. It's the modern mantra. Everyone gets to do whatever they want and they don't have to do whatever they don't want. And that's anarchy. That's chaos. And it's much worse than God's good authority structures, even though they're manned or womaned by fallen human beings. Anarchy's worse. As we see when homes are out of control or when nations are out of control or when states choose not to exercise authority, the chaos is worse 
than fallen people exercising authority even within their limited means. But we have a chance as the church to show the world a better way and to show them what a beautiful, harmonious home can look like when daddies love their mommies and children submit to their parents rather than rebelling and when we all honor the authorities that God places over us and when we are all excellent employees and we're all excellent employers and we have the opportunity to show the world a better way. G.K. Chesterton said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been thought difficult and left untried. This doesn't sound pleasant to people, so they don't do it. But we who know that we serve a good God and that the Bible is a good book and that He only means well for His children, that as we obey this, as we believe this, as we practice this, then we show the world a better way. And as they see our marriages and our children and our businesses and our homes and our communities, we hopefully lead them to the Lord where they will bow the knee to Him as well and He will do the same transforming work in them that He is doing in us. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for giving us the truth we need and not just the things we want to hear. And so we acknowledge that we are not good at this. Uh, as sinners, we are naturally defiant in the authorities that we are to be submissive to, and we are heavy-handed and self-serving with the authority that we have. Would you help us to submit in Christ-honoring ways to the authorities that are over us? Would you help us to exercise the authorities you delegate us in Christ-honoring ways? May we approximate ever more closely your intention for marriage, for homes, for communities, for workplaces, so that people would see the goodness of our God and come to know Him through His good, good Son. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.